listeners, and welcome to a special episode of The Partial Historians. It's just Dr. Red here tonight, but luckily, filling in for Dr. G, I have the lovely Amy Place visiting, and she's going to tell me all about her exciting research exploits. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. So please, tell me a little bit about what it is you've been focusing on for the last little while. So my PhD research looks at clothing and its relationship with identity in late antique Roman North Africa. Wow, yeah. Kind of how people were discussing and using clothing as a means of identity expression and how that relates to sort of wider social concepts and problems and anxieties and things like that. And just the basic uh, using the use of clothing and dress as uh, an important uh, mechanism for identity expression. Absolutely. So for our listeners who might not be as familiar with the Roman world as you and I, when we say late antique, what are we talking roughly time-wise? So I'm focusing on about 200 to 550 AD. Okay. So the the last straggling years of the Roman Empire in the West. Yes, that's the one. Awesome. And so when you're looking at uh, Roman Africa, what kind of areas uh, might we sort of equate it to in the modern world, roughly? It roughly equates to the modern Maghreb region. And so predominantly the coastal region okay. stretching from sort of uh, Libya all the way to Morocco, that kind of area. Okay. But a lot of it is the coastal regions that have been excavated or are the most um, popular yeah. points that historians look at. Yeah. So, now, uh, I'm sorry if this is an ignorant question, but do you look at Egypt at all? Is that sort of encompassed in that? or? No, I made the decision in the research not to look at Egypt because I feel like it's a special entity unto itself and yes. it deserves its own investigation and it, it needs its own investigation. Yes. And it's got so much a wealth of material that it's for someone else to do. And yeah. My, uh, my research excludes that. Okay, cool. So what drew you to looking at that particular area at this point in time? Um, firstly, it's in my opinion, a bit understudied. In Absolutely, terms of I know nothing about it. <laughs> but it's such a rich area. Yeah. And even just when I put together the beginnings of the project, just looking at all the different uh, mosaics that are coming from the region, they're so vibrant and yeah. colourful and they give us such a rich imagining and perception of clothing in this region that yes. I just felt it needed to be looked at. And there was also accompanying this such a rich sort of vocal rhetoric about... Uh, how dressing practices and sort of censure about clothing but also good clothing habits coming from very much the Christian authors yeah there's such a sort of wealth of information there that it just provides a great context to do this clothing research that actually you raise a really good point I mean what kind of source material are you really dealing with here are you, you I gather from what you just said that you're looking at both written sources and also more archaeological kinds of remains uh yeah so a lot of it is uh, very much the literary yes material and a lot of visual me- media I would have liked to look at archaeological remains right they're very much um just in Egypt itself right so I'm excluding okay. that region I've kind of referred to them in sort of passing but they're not the sort of focus of my research but the mosaic corpus has provided kind of that visual element yes. that you can sort of relate 
textual stuff too and sort of acts its own source material in itself right absolutely so who are your main are there like particular authors that you're focusing on in your studies yeah um actually my time period of 200 ad coincides very well with the writings of tertullian right quite famous in his in a couple of his works in his criticism of female dress in particular yeah that's one of the reasons that this sort of area of research I was drawn into this area of research is yes. that I kind of felt that he was in some instances unfairly criticised for his <laughs> opinions of women. Right. Some scholars feel he's quite um, misogynistic right. in his criticism of women, whereas through my research I've come to kind of understand that he was actually really maybe in some respects looking out for the best interests and he really kind of believed the things that he was saying yes and it wasn't all just for this kind of patriarchal show it, it kind of meant something to him and he was dealing with real life issues in his own context yeah so to tell you i mean this is a, a this is a source i've sort of come across in passing um, because it's not usually a period or you know an area that i focus on very much but Tertullian is uh one of the earlier sort of christian writers isn't he yeah. Um, and you've sort of alluded to the fact that there's a bit of a, there might be a bit of a religious element perhaps mm-hmm. to what's going on in the period that you're looking at. Yeah. So can you expand a bit more on that? Yeah. Um, at the time of Tertullian onwards, there is a sort of, as the Christian church is emerging and growing, dress is quite a prominent aspect of the rhetoric that's coming from these authors and yes. from the followers. And although my research hasn't found a Christian uniform as such. Mm. They're very much using dress as a means of showing their morality. Right. And they're sort of changing the their inherited Roman sort of moral, moral scheme yes. and adopting it to their new Christian context. And so this idea of dressing plainly and austerely, which develops into the aesthetic clothing practice, right. becomes very prominent and becomes a very useful and regular way of showing commitment to this new identity is especially elites and all elite women is this decision to wear cheap and plain clothing in place of what you would expect them to wear something Mm. that shows their status and it very much becomes the thing to do to showcase your dedication to your christian faith Interesting, yeah, because I mean, this is such a turbulent period of yeah. the Roman Empire. I mean, in terms of the central politics that's, that's going yeah. on. <laughs> um, for, for listeners who are less familiar with this period, as we go into sort of the 200s AD, we're talking about massive upheaval with, you know, emperors lasting, you know, very short periods of time at various points. In fact, it seems like the empire is almost on the point of collapse on a number of occasions. Yes, true. And then, of course, in the early 300s, that's when we've got Constantine the First coming in and becoming, you know, notoriously the first Christian emperor. So is all of that sort of playing out a little bit in what you're seeing in, in, in Africa or not so much? It's more just the local... I think, um, for my research, I've definitely seen what I think of as a growing confidence in Christian identity. Yes. So at the beginning of the period, it's very much... Um, commitment through persecution and sort of witnessing the faith. Yes. But as with Constantine and later emperors and the church becoming an established presence yeah. and gaining an authority, um, clothing practices do become more prominent as a means of expressing this kind of Christian identity, mm. as, I, as I said. And I think, yeah, with this growing confidence in the Christian faith comes... Uh, more distinctive clothing stylization of this aesthetic dress practice yes. and sort of this way of legitimately showing your dedication, whereas 
in a time where you can't be persecuted to sh- and show your ultimate commitment. This yes. kind of use of clothing is a sort of like the next best thing. Okay, interesting. So when we're talking about um, this area in Africa, like how many people do you think are, are Christian or, or, or how much of a swing are we seeing towards Christianity in this area during the period that you're looking at? I think that's very difficult to say. I don't think it's as clear-cut as we might think of pagan and Christian. Sure. I think it's definitely these sort of moulding and melding of environments. Yes. And equally, answering that question is also relying a lot on the source material, which yeah. is shows a very definite bias towards the Christian authors sure. because of later histories. But I think it is becoming a very dominant force yeah. in this area. And with all the different... Um, issues of schisms and orthodox problems that North Africa experiences in this time, mm. it's definitely a problem that is on everyone's, is very real to a lot of people, I think. And sure. It's having a real impact in a lot of different environments, even if the community itself isn't fully Christian. It's it's filtering into all elements of society. Yeah, because you're, you're basically saying the period where, you know, it's Christianity becoming more of a force and then gradually becomes the, you know, the dominant sanctioned yeah. religion. And then you're starting to see persecution of, you know, sort of pagan cults and pagan faiths as you continue on into the period. Yeah. So it's it's such a transition, you yeah. know, to look at that particular period. So you, you mentioned that Tertullian um, is quite critical of the way that some women dress. So tell me, what are those young hussies getting around in that setting him off so? <laughs> a lot of Tertullian's rhetoric is basically um, discussing how these women, either just women or female virgins, are not adhering to dress codes that he deems appropriate. Okay. So this might be in the case of Carthaginian versions they some appear unveiled in the church, Ooh. which for him is contrary to Pauline doctrine. Yes. And for him is very much a no-no. Yeah. And in other cases for sort of the general female population, it's uh, a tendency to ornamentation, an elaborate dress, which to him and to others um, who share his sentiments reflects as immorality or a, a desire to sh- showcase themselves willingly in public in Mm. a way that is not suitable for modest and chaste women yeah it's kind of interesting because it's even though i understand that this has obviously got a a certain uh religious element to it for him it's not really brand new criticism in terms of yeah in terms of coming at women for dressing immorally you know we've been seeing that kind of thing obviously for a little while in the roman empire with people saying that, you know, women's morals have, you know, slipped down and they're now dressing yeah. in these, like, fancy fabrics that are very sheer <laughs> and that kind of thing. Is it is he tapping into the same kinds of criticisms but just slightly adapting it? Yeah, yeah. certainly. And I think that's the reason why it, he's so successful in his rhetoric and why he has the opportunity to espouse these kind of ideas is because they have such an inheritance and they're so rooted in society that he's not saying anything that's super radical to yes. his audience they're very familiar with these tropes and yes. even though they might be stereotypes and characterizations which are not 100% accurate or realistic there's something there culturally that really resonates with his audience and yes. he can just adapt it ever so slightly for his new christian context Absolutely. and it works and yeah it's something that continues to work for hundreds of years later as well yeah do, do we have any idea about how his ideas were received i mean is that 
is there like response to him in other written works or um, I, his ideas are certainly picked up and echoed in Cyprian or Carthage right it's only a few decades later but unfortunately we don't have a female response necessarily no. to what he's saying other than the fact that sometimes he reiterates his point in another work which might suggest that hasn't quite worked or he's just kind of reminding them again yeah. <laughs> that they're still not quite following those dress codes that he so wants them to do get those hem lines a little bit like yes <laughs> okay cool so when you look at the kinds of things that he's talking about in his text so you, you've alluded to the fact that you do have some visuals in terms of like mosaics and that kind of thing how do those things match together for you really they don't in okay. a lot of instances yeah um and this is one of the things I've had to grapple with in my research is that on the one hand we've got this literary discourse which is all about austere clothing and people dressing in playing attire and not using jewellery. Yes. But in other instances, especially in representational arts, they're dressing themselves up to the nines and they want to showcase themselves in the best way possible. Yes, of course. And so it's a difficult matter of trying to work out what was actually going on and yeah. how far source conventions kind of govern the image that we see from a modern perspective. Sure. And, yeah, most of my mosaic images are elaborate and multicoloured and there's such a vibrancy in it, which mm. if you were just reading the literary sources, you think wouldn't. it's a very dull world. Yeah. <laughs> Apart from those very few which Tertullian are criticising because they're still not acting how... He thinks they should. Yeah, absolutely. So is there a bit of a class issue here? I mean, who do you think Tertullian is mostly speaking to? Because, I mean, I imagine the mosaics are mostly capturing, you know, elite, very wealthy. Elite, yeah. yeah, yeah, who can afford to make a choice. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas other women, it might not be really a matter of religion or taste. It's just what they can afford. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think there are, yeah, definitely class issues at play. And a lot of the later information we have about female dressing practices come from sort of celebratory rhetoric like Gerontius's life of Melania the Younger who is noted because she dresses in this aesthetic clothing because she sort of refuses the clothing that is most suitable for her that kind of elite attire right. she dresses in the clothing of sort of very cheap and it's sort of very much a lower class thing yes but she still regains that sort of element of elite status because she's choose she's got the option to choose to do it yes and unfortunately Tertullian is mainly directing himself at the elites and at the sort of upper echelons of society because these are the people who I think have the option to choose what they wear and to have that sort of ability to showcase their identity but that's not to say that um, in the general church and community that people were not reflecting upon sort of the his rhetoric in the lower classes and unfortunately it's just a lot of the time that these Christian authors are mentioning these elites because sure. that's who their patrons are and of course, they're, yeah. they're getting their influence and sort of background from yeah do we know much about Tertullian's own background like where he comes from or uh, he's definitely from uh the African area yeah um, as far as I have found in my research he wasn't actually ever uh part of the clergy right he's a very strong theologian okay. and very vocal in sort of defining Christianity as it was in his contemporary context yes and he's very um 
a very prominent figure around him and lots of other later Christian authors do refer back to him mm. and he's noted for his prominent position. And do you notice any particular like local trends? Like what, what's, what's trending in Roman <laughs> That's It's a quite a difficult question to answer, but mm. I think there are definite local customs going on because dress is such an important means of communication that you want it to have local significance because you want to reiterate your local yes. status and your local position. And yeah. to do that through dress is certainly a very advantageous thing to do. Yes. But again, accessing those slight differences is a bit difficult because sure. of the limited source material. And in some cases, authors will refer to a garment and give no description of what it is. Sure. So it's very difficult sometimes to match up terminology with an actual sort of shape or form yeah. of a garment. But um, at the same time, there are some documentary sources like Diocletian's Price Edict that do mention particular types of African clothing. Right. So got African cloaks or African shirts. And again, we don't know what these differences are, what makes it <laughs> very different from an Italian <laughs> version or sort of a uh, Britannic version. But... There, are, there must be something going on for these categories to be employed in this sort of material. But what that is, is very difficult to say, unfortunately. Absolutely. I'm just imagining, I mean, I know I know that your work is not focusing on Egypt, but I know that some of the finest cloth comes from Egypt, yeah. you know, so I can, I can only imagine that the people who live close by must have access to, you know, potentially really nice fabrics. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Which uh, might be slightly more affordable because of the, you know, Slightly closer, yeah. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So, good for them. Um, so what, what do you think is probably the most surprising thing that you've discovered during your the course of your research? I think one of the most surprising things mm. is just how much knowledge the general public had about textiles and clothing practices. Okay, yeah. And um, one of the aspects of my research has to be, has looked at how sort of textile metaphors or the use of textile terminology filters into other sort of aspects of social life. Mm. And in particular, sort of um, how some authors will refer to aspects of the textile production process. And it's just assumed that their audience will understand what this means. Mm. And I think in modern society, we've kind of lost that familiarity with the processes of making clothing. Yes. And so to me, that's been a very interesting point is just how... How much we've lost knowledge wise but also how much it's just a factor of everyday life um you know women being able to spin or weave yes yeah and it's just interesting to think how important clothing was as a, a necessity absolutely well i mean you touched on a really interesting point there because we often focus on women in our podcast but we're you know right at the beginning of the roman yeah. <laughs> republic so we're nowhere near you time wise nor location wise but it's, it's always such an important feature of being a good woman to be able to weave, you know, and even looking at places like Pompeii and Herculaneum, just because of the, you know, state of preservation, even with them, there's still so much debate about how much cloth production was actually going on, you know, how much was just yeah. like a laundry thing. But it certainly seems to have been a fairly big part of you know, of community life. Uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, when I look at the evidence, I'm like, yeah, I can kind of see how it is embedded in what they're doing, even if it's just like a laundry or something. Yeah, I think yeah. It, it, it is. And these ideas are stereotypes and characterizations precisely because there's that nugget of truth in them, I think. Yes. And I, I think that the average woman, even elite women, 
have they have the stereotype of being um you know surveying their sort of attendants and their slaves and work on weaving or spinning Absolutely. that kind of thing yeah and even though you may not imagine every elite household is carrying out these activities to a certain extent i think there's a basis there. Yeah, absolutely. So we've been focusing a lot on the ladies, which yes. I do like to do. <laughs> do you look at the men at all in your work or like what's going on with men's clothing or is it not as much of an issue because of the maybe the slight lack of the morality dimension? It's still a very prominent um, part of North African rhetoric at this time. Right. And um, even if you look at sort of hunting costumes in North African mosaics, yes, they show a certain trend to being a lot more ornate and a lot more sort of complex. Whether this is what's happening in the clothing practices themselves is a matter of debate, but at least elite men in particular are show, showing themselves in fashions which to sort of the late Republic male were scandalous. Right. Long sleeve clothing, yeah. possibly made of sort of elements of silk, that kind of thing. Ooh la la. Yeah. So <laughs> you can imagine a, a late and a late Roman uh male being horrified to know that only three hundred years later men are going about in these elaborate costumes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so is there like an element of practicality to wearing this as a fabric or do you think it is for show, like for status and that sort of thing? I think it really is a status thing. Yeah. Because even though the toga it continues to be a very symbolic and important garment, yes. it's not very frequently used in representational arts, especially in mosaics. Okay. Uh, a lot of the time men are choosing to some extent to be shown in tunics and they become mm. decorated and elaborate. And I think this to a degree reflects reality. And even though we could argue that the toga itself isn't an everyday garment through the whole period, sort of oh, for sure. yeah. Republic and early Imperial. Yeah. I think it becomes even more of a a ceremonial garment in the late antique period. Well that probably I, I suppose that probably has a little bit to do, as you say, like where we are in the Roman Empire. Because in terms of being a citizen, you know, how how is that I suppose reflected in what you're looking at I mean is it is it you just wear the toga to show off when you're doing something to do with like public office or you're doing something yeah I yeah, think it's, it's very yeah. much a uh, more of an official garment yeah um I've looked at a couple of images of sort of consuls who uh or sort of consular activities and they're wearing the toga as you would expect yes um sort of um as a sort of garment of authority mm. and maybe it's used in some instances to refer back to a time period a sort of a nostalgic yes. garment but it's very much not in my opinion a, a common everyday garment no it could be sort of north africa is very uh cl- climatically you sh- you know it's, bit it's hotter very, there. Yeah. <laughs> and for it would make sense to wear a tunic instead. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I mean it's it's, it's just a different time period, isn't it? Because by this stage, most people who live in that area are going to be, you know, potentially citizens. Yeah. You know, um, and so it's a it's a bit of a different world to the world where you know, yeah, only the elite who actually like are you know in Rome and in in Italy are considered to be you know citizens, which is kind of the period that we're looking at at the moment where it's you know very very early days, but. By now, we've got you know emperors coming from all over yeah. the empire. So, where you come from is perhaps 
slightly less of an issue in terms of the role that you can play in the yeah. political life. I, yeah. I think as well, because clothing generally shows difference, or it's used to display difference, mm. once everyone gets citizenship and theoretically access to the toga, yes. it no longer retains that sort of element of differentiation that yeah. it once had. And in my opinion, that's why tunic styles become more ornate and developed is because this is another means of showing difference. Yeah. It's the fact that you'll be able, you can afford to have a fancy or a very elaborate design. Yes, absolutely. Now, you, obviously you've mentioned the climate in Africa. Yeah. Sometimes we get things that are better preserved in this part of the world than in, say, Europe because it is a bit drier, it's a bit hotter. Dare I say, are there any elements of clothing that have actually been preserved that you've been able to study? Or Unfortunately, no. Okay. There are some fragments from the Fasan region of North Africa, but this is an area that's outside the influence of the Roman um government right um it, as it's a sort of sub-saharan landscape right okay. uh, which is again one of the reasons why preservation is a little bit better yeah and so i've been able to have sort of look at the sort of things that have come from this region but i don't think that very typical of the roman sort of presence in north africa itself right unfortunately i would love for there to be an excavation <laughs> sort of this wonderful sort of wealth of material to come I just from thought there. You, you never know, do you? Yeah, <laughs> it, it would be wonderful because, yeah, part of the problems I've had to deal with is you've got this visual material and you've got this literary evidence and matching the two together is difficult in itself. Yeah. But having sort of physical evidence would also add another layer of interpretation which would just help sort of answer some of the questions that we have about forms and fashions that we just, Absolutely. at the moment can only take our best guess there. Yeah, and do you, do you look at jewellery and that sort of thing at all? Because I imagine that's more likely to survive than... Yeah. yeah. Personally, I haven't looked, had uh, the opportunity to look at it in my research, mainly because there was enough evidence for just dress and clothing in itself. Sure. And that uh, even though jewellery is a sort of a very important component of that moralising discourse or that yes. sort of ornamentation rhetoric, or anti-ornamentation rhetoric, that yes. is very prominent in the region that I haven't really been able to study all the different forms and sort of fashions that there are but there's definitely scope for that research to be done because I think it is a very important way of differentiating and creating difference yes. in well, people. And I, and I imagine again I mean given the area that you're looking at obviously it's a you know Africa North Africa in particular is like a famous for having access to things yeah. like gold you know in, in larger quantities than in other parts yeah. of the Roman Empire. It's um, a very rich area as well. So yeah. I would imagine this leads to very elaborate displays. Yes, absolutely. And, and of course, again, that's the kind of thing that's probably more likely to actually survive than people True, to look yeah. at. <laughs> but we like to go for the difficult stuff. <laughs> so I'm afraid we're probably drawing towards a close on our conversation today. But before we go, I was just wondering, Amy, what would you like our listeners to take away about your area of research? I think um, just that part of the reason for me doing the research is that I feel like this is it's quite an understudied area of mm. society. But also one of the sort of aspects of research, which is very familiar to us today. I mean, we all make clothing choices in our day-to-day lives. And I think it's very interesting topic to be able to kind of think back 
to these sort of processes that we innately do ourselves and think back to how sort of the average Roman elite woman would dress themselves in sort of 200 AD as well. And so I think it's, uh, it's a very exciting area of research because it's so familiar yet so foreign at the same time. Absolutely. And I suppose I, suppose I should ask you what probably is a question with an obvious answer, but I think it still probably bears putting it on the record. Why is it that this area and this period are so understudied? I think a lot of the time it's uh, because Italian or sort of central Roman mm. dress practices have been sort of the main focus of research. Yeah. And equally, there are sort of abundant remains from Copt- of Coptic textiles, but those are quite, they're studied for their kind of very structural characteristics. Right. And less so in terms of their sort of literary discourse and how they fit into the sort of wider rhetoric being created and produced in the region. But I think a lot of the time it's scholars have had a tendency to think that clothing is very a passive material and that it's suiting a functionality that yes. for me I think it far surpasses and I think it's a much more active material in sort of social processes than scholars have tended to give it credit for. Well, I, I suppose especially given the, the period and the area that you're looking at, I mean, as, as you've alluded to a number of times, um, in the Christian tradition, as it evolves, clothing does become such a, a significant way of indicating what kind of faith yeah. you're practising. Um, I mean, getting to the really extreme people, as you say, like the, in the ascetic sort of movement where, yeah, I mean, you, you've got people who are literally wandering off into the desert and not being heard or seen of again yeah. for decades. So <laughs> whatever they were wearing, presumably when they left, is what they... <laughs> yeah, yeah. when they return, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I guess... I, and, and and obviously the, the tradition developing in certain strands of Christianity of of being um, very stringent and, and tough on yourself about, you know, what you allow yourself, not just in clothing, but in many aspects yeah. of life. Um, but clothing is a way of visually signifying Definitely, that to yeah. other people. And... And it's always been obviously a way of advertising who you are and still is to this day, yeah. you know, um, as you say, with, with our identities and that sort of thing. So absolutely, I can totally see how we're sort of, you know, very touching the similarities yeah. of the people with the past when we look at things like that. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again for joining us. I'm thank sure our listeners me. will be fascinated because we don't often venture, uh, as you say, outside of the usual sort of Italian Central Europe <laughs> Oh no, it's great. It's great. I've learned so much. Thank you again. Thank you. Now, one thing I've been very remiss in asking during this whole podcast is whereabouts have you been doing all this fabulous work? So I'm based at the University of Leicester in the UK and my research has been funded by a studentship um, by the Midland Three Cities Doctoral Training Partnership. Well, we were very lucky that you were able to stop by Macquarie University, our old alma mater, as you were touring around Australia. 